We have been walking together on the road to the resurrection as we've looked at Christ's passion in the book of Matthew. As Chris has reminded us in the weeks leading up to today, passion comes from, our word passion comes from the Latin to suffer. So we've been looking at the suffering of Jesus. And it's our hope that as we get to know this story, as we read the Gospels, as we hear his, this word preached, that we are transformed into God's compassionate people. Compassion, meaning with suffering. That is, as we hear the story and know what more, what it was that God has done, that how he suffered in Christ, and what that has given to us, that we are transformed into people who can walk alongside and care for others, because that is what Jesus has done for us. Historically, one of the ways that Christians have inhabited the story of Christ's passion is through drama. And thinking medieval Europe, there had passion plays everywhere. Most famous of which is actually not Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, but a passion play that happened in a little Bavarian village called Oberammergau. Um, in ni- um, 1633, the bubonic plague came to Oberammergau, and I think it was a family that, that died, and the town cried out to God and said, If you would spare us, we will dedicate ourselves to proclaiming your passion. And lo and behold, God spared the village. And every ten years since 1634, they have put on a play that reenacts this story. Um, and from everything, I've never been there, but... From everything I've heard about it, it sounds magnificent. They have the whole village scores the music for this play. They, they build the sets. Um, they act in the play. As many as a thousand people can be on stage at one time. The, the last time this play happened was, was in 2010. And something like 500,000 people took the pilgrimage to... Over Ramagau and and watch this play. But passion plays have an ugly side to them. The, it's interesting. This town, when their play was the most popular, was actually the interwar period, the twenties and the thirties of the last century. In in nineteen 19- 34, the tricentennial performance. They had a cast of some 700 people. 150 of those were members of the Nazi party. And the way that this play was done, it really kind of played up anti-Semitic aspects. Um, they explored the Sanhedrin trial and some really hurtful things were said. And, and Jesus 
was kind of aloof from the other Jews. He dressed different. He acted different. Um, it kind of is kind of an interesting thing. Is that these plays that were designed to share a story of how God saves the world ended up reinforcing some pretty ugly 20th century racial prejudices that then paved the way for the Holocaust and some really horrible things. We are looking at Matthew's Gospel. And, and I will say that Oberammergau is still going. They've actually made some changes in their play, so it's a little more racially sensitive. But Matthew's Gospel is historically the Gospel that has sometimes been used to underwrite some of these racial ugliness. In the passage that I'm going to read in a moment, it ends with the Jews, the people there, shouting, His blood be on our heads and on our children's heads. They take full responsibility. It's as if they say to Pilate, Pilate, we got this. It's ours. We take responsibility for this. They are responsible and proud of it. And people have taken that statement and used it to justify racial hatred. Now there, there are reasons why Matthew seems to be the gospel that is hardest on the Jews. Um, one of my profs at Regent, Phil Long, used to say, context is your friend. Um, and if you look at the context of Matthew, this is the most Jewish of the gospels. As you know, We've been kind of living in it the past couple of years, few years. How long have we been living in Matthew, Chris? On and off for a while. Um, this is a, a gospel that is actually patterned off the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There are five blocks of teaching followed by five actions. Um, there are numerous biblical references from the Hebrew Bible. You cannot understand who Jesus is in Matthew unless you understand the whole picture of what God is doing with his people. And I will say also that some of the kind of soft-pedaling pilot's role in this is because the Gospels are written in Imperial Rome. Um, and you don't criticize the emperor outright or Rome outright. Um, you know, it's anti right, I think, who coined the phrase that if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. But this is an implicit critique, it's not explicit. You don't just say, Caesar's not Lord. You let the kind of the gospel work its way in there. And I think there's a critique here. But there's still some very hard things to say to the Jewish people in here. And I think that's Matthew knows his audience. He wants them to sense their part in the drama and their corporate sin. So as we look at this, I'm not trying to absolve the Jewish people for killing Jesus. I'm trying to say there's enough blame to go around. Um, if you set this in a larger theological frame... Jesus died because of 
all of our sin. Um, John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. This was God's plan from the foundation of the world to save humanity. We all have a part in, in Jesus' death. So before I read this, turn to your neighbor with as much vitriol and anger as you can muster and say, you killed Jesus. No, I'm not. I'm just serious. Go ahead. Say it. (laughs) And then own it. Put your hand on your heart and say, I killed Jesus. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. And as I read this, pay attention to what God might be speaking to you in your heart. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus said. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At the time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him! Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere... But instead, an uproar was starting. He took water and he washed his hands and said to him in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's all your responsibility.
And all the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then they released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, you may be seated. In the last couple weeks, we've looked at the fate of Peter and the fate of Judas, and we sort of haven't really delved very far into what's been going on with Jesus. We know from last week, at the beginning of this chapter, Chris preached on that they handed, they bound him and took him to Pilate. And that's where we pick up this story. Sorry, I lost my page here. Pilate is not a good guy. In in a commentary by Craig Keener, he argues that it's not really Jesus who's on trial here. It is Pilate. And nobody of the Jews ever thought that Pilate was a great guy. When he was first appointed governor of Jerusalem in Judea, he forcibly brought images of Caesar into Jerusalem, and he learned firsthand that Jews found images of the emperor blasphemous, and they were willing to die. He threatened them, they bared their necks, and said, go ahead. Another time, he put shields in Herod's temple as in honor of Tiberius Caesar, and a protest came out, and he would not remove them until Tiberius Caesar said, no, you should remove them. You are causing problems. He took money from the temple to build an aqueduct for, for Jerusalem, and again, an outburst happened. People were protesting, and he had his soldiers dress in plain clothes and go and beat everybody who was opposing him. Not a great guy, but the Sanhedrin needed him. Sanhedrin and the high priests needed Pilate's cooperation if they were to put someone to death. We know that he was pretty well sentenced to death for blasphemy in a midnight trial, but they did not have the power of the state behind them. So, they begrudgingly go to Pilate. We hear a little bit of difference in the language. You know, the, the charge that the high priest brought to Jesus said, you know, in, in chapter 26, 62, was, tell me under oath, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus answers, it is as you say. Um, 
here we have kind of the same words, but it's a little bit different. Pilate focuses on Jesus' kingship. They've crafted their accusal, or, or Pilate has heard it as a political charge. Jesus is king. Oh, are you the king? And again, Jesus' response. You say so. Um, that's um, literally Jesus is saying something like, Your words, not mine. Because he may be the king of Israel, but he's not the king in the way that Caesar or the way that the high priests would be thinking. Pilate hears their charge. But he doesn't really, he's not really even talking to them. The only person Pilate's interacting with in this trial is Jesus himself. They make their charge. We're told that they're they're accusing them and and Pilate says to Jesus, not to them, do you not hear their testimony? But to his amazement, Jesus gives no answer. But Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He certainly knows that he's no threat to the great Roman emperor, at least he thinks he's no threat. He knows that the only reason that this man was brought before him was because he was too popular and these priests were jealous. You know, I, I read verse 18 says in this version, the NIV says self-interest. Your version might say envious. They were envious of the kind of stature and kind of public presence that Jesus had. So it may have been a miscalculation on Pilate's part when he decided to pit the will of the people against the judgment of the priests. This trumped up public scene may have just been Pilate opposing the priest out of spite, assuming that for once, once in his whole reign, in his whole lifetime, the people would side with him and release Jesus, and the priests would be standing there discredited. There was a custom of releasing one prisoner during the feast of the Passover. Now, there's no direct historical evidence that I can find that this happened, but this sounds like a very Roman thing. We, we do have examples of the Romans releasing prisoners in, in other religious festivals. It's, it's kind of what Rome does, uses the religion of the people to tighten its grasp. Anyways, there was a man there named... Jesus Barabbas, Aramaic Jesus, son of the father. He was an insurrectionist who had murdered someone in an uprising, as Mark's gospel tells us. He was rotting in a Roman jail, a failed revolutionary waiting to be executed. He was well known to all the people, famous, 
infamous. Pilate said to the crowd, Which of these do you want me to release to you? Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus, called the Messiah? The chief priest persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. I don't know how much manipulation that all entailed. Think of this, if you were one of the people, you've traveled for miles to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem where the temple is, and your priest, the, the very people that would hear your confession, that would take your offering and your sacrifice, say, tell them to execute this man. What do you do? If you oppose them, will you hear will they hear your confession? Chris preached last week about Judas and kind of the failure of pastoral care when he, he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Not our problem. What happens if the people who want to worship God in his temple oppose the priests? I don't know, but it sounds to me like there's an abuse of power behind some of the sudden turn. It could also be this strange sociological phenomenon known as the madness of crowds. People in groups are always worse when they do wrong than people on their own. If you asked your average German in the 1930s if they would sign off on exterminating six million Jews and trying to wipe them off the face of the planet. To a person, they would almost all say, not on your life, no. But when the nation moved in a direction, people, without even thinking, without even guilt, participated. The same thing happened in the Rwandan genocide. Hutus killed Tutsis that they had known their whole life, played with as children. They did what they did without guilt or sorrow till years later because everyone was doing it. Before Pilate issued his final judgment, a messenger comes with word from his wife telling him to have nothing to do with that innocent man. She suffered much in a dream because of him. After Judas, she is the second person in the Gospel of Matthew who testifies to us about Jesus' innocence. She regards it as an omen. And it's, there's a divine warning. Don't get involved. And here we are, Pilate, governor of Judea, who knows that Jesus is an innocent, poses no direct threat from Rome, has been given a divine warning from his wife in a dream. What does he do? He asked the crowd, which one of these do you wish 
me to release to you. And they shout, Barabbas! Why? What about the one who's called the Messiah? Crucify him! Why? What crime has he committed? Louder now, crucify him! Pilate saw that the people were worked up in a frenzy at this point. And there's no reasoning with the mob. He asked for a basin of water and he washes his hand, a public act designed to disavow any responsibility for the fate of the one called Christ. I am innocent of this man's blood. He is your responsibility. And the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Barabbas was released and Jesus sent to be flogged and beaten and then crucified. No matter how much Pilate washed his hands that day, they were stained with an innocent man's blood. Keep in mind what I told you from the beginning here, that the chief priest took Jesus to Pilate because they needed him in order to secure Jesus' execution. That's why they were there. It is Pilate, and Pilate alone, who had the power of life and death over a person and decided who the state was going to execute. Even if he abdicated that decision of who would be released during Passover to the crowd, it's his prerogative of his own pleasure, of his sense for justice, whatever, to release Jesus as well. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that it was jealousy that got him there. He had heard his wife's warning, but he went along with the crowd. Pilate was not a great guy, and he was not a great leader. There is a complete lack here of any moral courage. Can you imagine, just imagine for a moment if this was happening today, um, if he made this decision to lead kind of by popular decision, straw polls, the will of the populace, how that would all be portrayed on Fox News. They would have skewered him for failing to take a stand. Any stand at all. I titled this sermon, The Beginning of the End of the World. Literary reference, anyone got that? I was reading Voyage of the Dawn Treader with, with my daughter Ember. And this is the chapter where they get to Ramandu's Island and from there we'll go on to the very end of the world a couple chapters later. Now, it's the lion, the witch in the wardrobe of C.S. Lewis's 
Chronicles of Narnia novels that very viscerally, viscerally portrays Christ's death. The character of Aslan shorn and stretched across the stone table and, and killed. But there are resonances of Christ's passion throughout the Chronicles. And when the Dawn Treader reaches Ramadu's island, they find a garden aisle with Aslan's table laid out. And three sleeping lords of Narnia that are there. And the only way that they can wake him from their slumber is if one of them goes to the end of the world and sacrifices their life. So you hear all that? I mean, we've got this. We have Aslan's table, three sleepers on a garden island, kind of like three sleeping disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, cheap, a mouse on a mission who will lay down his life for the lords of Narnia. It's, it's kind of there. His face set like a flint towards the very end of the world. Any part of the story that we've been telling so far, we could have called the beginning of the end of the world. But at the end of this passage, Jesus stands a condemned man. He is taken to be flogged and beaten before being stretched out and killed. In a few short hours after this passage ends, the world has ended and reality as it was known is forever altered. Because the God of the universe sacrificed himself to bring life to the world and repair our brokenness. But we see the beginning of it here, even before Jesus dies, he brings life. Even before Jesus dies, his death brings life, because Barabbas is a man deserving of crucifixion, if ever there was a man that was deserving of crucifixion, and he walks out of prison free and alive while Jesus dies in his place. I don't actually know what Barabbas' life was like after that point. Um, the novel Barabbas by the Swedish novelist Per Lagerkvist imagines this tortured soul, somebody who owes his very life to Jesus but can't quite bring himself to believe. And he kind of walks in existential angst until he finally dies. Maybe Barabbas came to believe. Maybe he did not. I don't know. But I do know that when he woke up that day, he was a dead man. And yet, at the end of the day, he was alive and another was dead in his place. His life foreshadows the freedom and life that is ours in Christ Jesus. That we get through his death and through his resurrection. The end of the world is the beginning. And Barabbas is our sign.
a powerful image. And I'm haunted by the words of the people. His blood be on us and on our children. In a few moments, Chris is going to come to this table and we will proclaim together something very similar to these words. His blood be on us and on our children. We know Jesus came and he died for our sins and for for the ability that, that we could come and he can give us new life. We enact this every single week we come to this table. We believe in Jesus and know that it's our sins that he came to die for. And as much, much as it's Pilate's fault, the crowd's fault, the priest's fault, we share in that blame. This is how God responded to our sin. And we know that it's through Christ's death that we find life. And so we come in fellowship and the strong hope that Christ's death saves us and our families. We, his blood be on us and our children. I long for my kids to know more fully and put their trust in Jesus and what he did. And I, and, and I think that's every Christian parent longs to hear their own daughters and sons proclaim their trust in Jesus. Words that have echoed through the centuries causing suffering for Jews and reinforcing Christian anti-Semitism should have been on our own lips as a prayer. Because if Jesus' blood is on us, then we have been made clean. If Jesus' blood is on us, we are set free and given new life. We will gather in a moment. And as we do, you are invited to a new world. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. If you haven't trusted Jesus with your life, look to him. He's laid his life down for you because of you but for you. Trust in Him and experience the blessings that He's offered. Freedom. New, abundant life. You don't have to wait until Easter because this story has already been written. But many of us who have answered this call also need to hear the invitation. that we will trust Him more fully and participate in the life that He offers. We know this in part, but this is a reality that we need to continually press into and allow it to shape us. Let Christ's passion transform us into His compassionate people. Let me pray for us.
anyone's in Christ, new creation. Old passing away, new has come. God, when we consider what you have done for us in Jesus, no response that we can offer is sufficient. We come in need. We come in sorrow over our sin. We come in gratitude. Teach us to trust you and all that you did for us through your cross. In your strong name, amen.